This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. We're going to get it right into it off the top of the hour here about the subject of K-12 public school superintendents in northern Michigan and the problem recruiting them and keeping them, retention. Uh, It used to be a great job, I thought, school superintendent. Maybe not so much anymore. We're very lucky to have on the other line with us Brendan Queeley, a reporter with the Traverse City Record Eagle who has written extensively about this subject. Brendan Queeley, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it, Bill. Brendan, how do you look at the situation up there across northern Michigan? I know Traverse City has some problems uh, recruiting and retaining school superintendent, but there are a whole bunch of other districts up there that have problems. What is the deal? See, I wonder if it's a, it's a couple of things. It's either cyclical or it's an anomaly, right? Um, at any given time in the state of Michigan and, in, uh, and across the country, You've got about 25% of the superintendent, K-12 superintendent positions are kind of in flux. Either that means that uh, school districts are actively looking, they've got an interim in the position, or they don't have anybody in the position at all. Uh, up here in Traverse City and in northern Michigan, uh, you, you look around the area, and it's about 33 to 35% of our superintendents are, are in that situation. So we're a little bit higher than the state and national average. Uh, the the interesting part about it is, is this something that maybe just parts of the state go through because you've got uh, superintendents that are retiring or you've got superintendents that are starting. Um, a lot of the people that I've talked to have said northern Michigan is a place where superintendents either come to start their career or they come to retire. So if you're starting here, you're not going to be here for a very long time. And if you retire here, you're not here for the long haul. And I think that's probably the uh, the biggest factor in why there's so much turnover up here. When you use the percentage 35%, are you saying that's the number of vacancies in these various districts in northern Michigan right now? I wouldn't say vacancies. I would say that um, the, the the districts up here, they've either got an interim or they're, they're looking for a, a superintendent or they have a superintendent who's about to retire. So that, that's that's where that figure comes from. I got you. Back in the old days, the good old days, maybe when the cycle was more favorable to northern Michigan, didn't superintendents uh, tend to stay longer uh, than they are now? As you say, maybe they're starting out, maybe they're retiring, but uh, it seems like there are not even that many people applying for these vacancies now compared to the good old days. So there's, again, the interesting part is, is one, the, the superintendent position, from what I've been told, the, the interims that I've talked to, such as Jim Pavelka and Lee Sandy, those are veteran educators who have been in the, in, in the edu- education field for decades upon decades. And they, they both told me that the superintendent position is one of, of turnover, and it's usually three to five years. What is interesting about you, you mentioned the um, – people who can apply for these positions or those seeking the superintendent position, that seems to be drying up because people aren't getting into the education field anymore. Uh, the number of education licenses has dropped dramatically in the last 15 to 16 years. Those entering um, 
college programs or preparatory courses for education also decreasing by an alarming rate, which means that less people are becoming teachers, which means less people are becoming principals, which means less people are then going on to central office or super, uh, assistant superintendent positions, and then eventually the, the superintendent position. So there's a problem with the, the pipeline. If you don't have people getting into education, they're not going to be there long enough to get the experience to then become a superintendent. Is this related to the dry up of student population in Michigan? I mean, we're down, aren't we? Number of pupils, uh, K-12 throughout Michigan. I mean, is it all related? I think, I think Michigan's seen about an 11% drop in the last decade, uh, if, if the figures that I looked at were correct. And I, I think that has to do with it. I, I think compensation obviously has something to do with it. You look at a teacher coming out of college now with a great deal of debt, going into some jobs that are starting off at you know between twenty two and twenty four thousand dollars a year. That's pretty tough to live on, uh, especially when you consider that's before taxes. Um, you know you're struggling to find a place to live, make rent, buy your groceries, and then also pay off that tremendous amount of student debt. Unless you're lucky enough to not have to take out student loans or um, were able to work your way and pay your way through college. What about the job of school superintendent itself once somebody is in it? Is it more stressful, do you think, today than maybe it used to be? I think the eyes in the position are a lot more now. Uh, I think that the advent of social media, and I hate to be one of those guys, you know, I'm I'm 35 years old. I, uh, it's not that I hate social media or anything like that, but I think Social media now provides a spot for so many people to get together, and if there's a grievance or a gripe about a superintendent, they can really put it out there uh, into the community instead of maybe just talking with a couple of other friends and complaining about, all oh, the superintendent did this and did that. But now it's on social media, and you're talking about people starting campaigns and, and all of this, and it becomes a, a force in the community and a, a real stressor uh, on the job. Do superintendents today have to be much more uh, in the public eye than they used to be? I mean, social media, as you say, maybe projects them into the public eye more than they want to be. But do they have to interface with the public more than they used to? Absolutely. It is a huge part of the job now, Uh, so much more than I think when I'd say I was growing up and going through. I mean, when I was in junior high, high school and all that, I didn't even know that there was a superintendent of my school district. But I, I guarantee you that the students today now know that and understand that there's a position that is above a teacher, above a principal, and, and above others. And superintendents have to be out there explaining things like, hey, here's why we're doing this. Here's why we're choosing this curriculum. Here's why we want this bond passed, uh, passed um, you know, seeking money. And community relations is a huge part of the job now. And I think everybody knows you're not going to please all the people all the time, and that means that as a superintendent, you have to make tough choices that people aren't going to like, and you have to have thick skin about it and not be uh, not not be swayed by uh, sometimes a vocal minority. Is the same thing true for other administrators in K-12 public school systems in northern Michigan? I mean, in other words, principals and other administrators, uh, are they more in the public eye, and do they feel more stressed than they used to? I'm not sure about that. Um, uh, that, that hasn't been my experience. Uh, I would say that in terms of teachers and principals, administrators, things like that, um, they're certainly more vocal. 
Uh, and my, my guess would be that they're also affected by the teacher shortage and uh, educator shortage and things like that. I mean, up here, we, we do have a pretty big problem with filling all the staff positions uh, at our schools. There's a huge amount of long-term substitute teachers that have to just take over classes simply because there's no one else that they can hire to, to teach. So uh, I, I think there's a lot of advocacy out there from teachers and principals as well trying to get people into the education profession, and that forces them into the public eye as well. What about school board members in northern Michigan? Are they having trouble coping with this situation and maybe conducting superintendent searches and getting new superintendents acclimated and giving them support? Uh, what? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I think the, the job of a board member when it comes to hiring a superintendent, hiring and keeping, you know, retaining a superintendent is becoming uh, exponentially more difficult uh, as the year go, years go on. We had a situation here in Traverse City where uh, a superintendent was hired. Um, she lasted 78 days before relations broke down with the board, and she uh, she resigned. Um, that that is that right there. I'll tell you, is an anomaly. That that does not happen very often. And usually, the shortest tenure for a superintendent is one year. Um, and, and and right now, it's it's a difficult situation. Right. Listen, we could talk forever on this uh, really fascinating subject, and I don't envy the K-12 public education system right now. Brendan Quilly, you've done a great job. Reporter with the Traverse City Record Eagle. Brendan Quilly, thank you. Thank you. We'll be back. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have a great guest here, Representative Ann Bolin from the 42nd House District. She is a Republican from Brighton, and I believe she represents the city of Brighton and five surrounding townships in southeastern Livingston County, including Brighton Township, of which she was clerk. For many years, now she's in the State House of Representatives. She's a member of the Appropriations Committee, Representative Ann Bolin. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Listen, uh, this is a turbulent time for anybody who's a clerk (laughs) at a township or municipal level or the Secretary of State, for that matter. And there's a lot of stuff going on in the legislature right now regarding elections and whether or if they can be approved and the results of Proposal 3 on the ballot two years ago that resulted in a somewhat expanded electorate and no reason absentee voting. Let me ask you about, first of all, this whole issue of voting and the presidential primary coming up on March 10th, the general election later. What is happening in the legislature with regards to that? Well, there are a lot of bills that uh, have had hearings and have even passed out of their respective election committees. And in the House, they're either uh, on their way or through the Ways and Means Committee, or they're going on to the Senate floor. 
Um, I have several bills um, that are working their way through the process, as does uh, Rep. Callie has a, a couple of bills also. All of the bills are intended to, number one, preserve the integrity of our election administration and elections in the state of Michigan, and measures that are going to help local clerks administer elections. Some of these bills address longstanding issues, and some of the bills address um, you know, some changes as well as total free, in particular, no reason to be. Presidential primary coming up in March. Uh, we run presidential primary for a number of presidential elections. Um, I have full confidence in the clerk that they're going to be able to, you know, administer this election, even with the changes in same-day registration, maybe without any problems. We're not going to be another aisle question. We'll have our results in a timely fashion. We certainly have pure elections. Yeah, representative. Representative, you're you're breaking up a little bit. Can you maybe talk more directly into the microphone or the sure. the phone? Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, what about the the prospect? Are we ever going to get to a point where absentee ballots are counted, actually tabulated before election day itself? Are we ever going to get there? Should we get there? Well, I think that if we are going to move to be an early voting state, that we have to really thoughtfully uh, consider what that means and how that happens. Right now, we are what we refer to as an absent voter state. So that means voters are absent from the polls on Election Day and somebody on your behalf puts a ballot into the tabulator. Early voting enables a voter to actually put their ballot in. And if we were to move to counting ballots early, I would be in favor of moving to an early voting system that gives the voter the opportunity to put their own ballot in the tabulator, determine if there's a mistake, and then make the correction according. Right. Let me ask you about security uh, for Secretary of State. Now, that's something I don't think you had to worry about except on Election Day, maybe as a township clerk. But these branch offices for driver's licenses, uh, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson has asked Governor Whitmer to ask the legislature for a huge amount of money. I think it's something like $790,000 for armed security personnel because there have been incidents of violence in branch offices. And, you know, it's kind of amazing to me, uh, the Secretary of State is claiming, if I understand correctly, that she's not really sure there are many more instances of violence in the branch offices now than there were five or 10 years ago, but that somehow the Secretary of State before, meaning Ruth Johnson, meaning Terry Land or Candace Miller, weren't reporting them or weren't having the branch offices report these instances. And the only reason this publicity is out there now is because she, Jocelyn Benson, has asked the branch offices to make sure they report this stuff. And then as a result of this, she is disturbed at the figures that gotten a lot of publicity, not good publicity, saying, well, we got to have armed security personnel in these branch offices. What do you think about all that? Well, I first of all, I'm not going to condone any kind of bad behavior or violence. This is the first time any sort of formal report and request for filing of complaints or incidents has been uh, publicized. Um, I think that employees have always been encouraged as part of the state workforce that, you know, if you have problems, you are to report them. I think it's also a sign of the times. We have never had the concerns over wait times in, you know, the last 10 years that we've had in the last 18 to 20 months. We've had system changes um, over the years. 
Um, certainly, the Secretary of State's office also handles more transactions than any other office in state government. And so as people make their transactions, you know, the number of transactions is high, and um, you know, they're increasing. And a, a lot of them require, even though we can go online, going into the Secretary of State's office and actually conducting your transaction. I think that people have little tolerance for wait times in society in general. I think that um, you know we just have to encourage people to use other resources, the kiosk, the online transactions. The Secretary of State has branched off into grocery stores um, in leveraging resources. Um, but I don't think armed guards are the way to handle this. One bill that's been introduced, I think, or at least it's been talked about by some members, mainly I think Democrats, demand that Election Day be made a holiday, a legal holiday, just like the 4th of July, Memorial Day, Labor Day, whatever. What do you think of that idea? Well, you know, we have more than one Election Day a year. And no, I think that is a decision that an employer makes on whether or not they're going to grant the holiday. It's a paid time off. It's lost the productivity for people. I think it's important that that be decided by the employers themselves. You know, what will that do to help Election Day? I don't know. Yeah, well, you know, we offer no reason AV now. I will tell you one of the shortages or where we really need to help is for people to sign up to be election inspectors. And, um, you know, the more election inspectors we have trained and certified can help in the polls. We'll help with lines, um, more information about how the voting process actually works. And I think they can assist local clerks in helping them run smoothly. When we have this presidential primary on March 10th, what percentage of the vote do you predict right now, based on what you're hearing and based on your long experience as a township clerk, what percentage is going to be absentee vote? Um, I would say, uh, so I think we'll probably have somewhere maybe roughly 40 to 50 percent voter turnout on the high end. And I'd say probably 60, 65 percent of that will be absentees. Wow. Well, I mean, that's two-thirds of the people who vote would be absentee. I mean, just a few years ago, it was like less than a third. So it's really shot up as a result probably of Proposal 3, right? Oh, I think that that is definitely part of it. Um, we also have a graying population, and so the availability um, just automatically, even before No Reason AV, was 60-plus reason. Um, but I don't think this is anything that the clerks can't tackle and they're not set up for. If you look at traditionally what the voter turnout has been in uh, gubernatorial election years, presidential election years, presidential primaries, um, we're still below a threshold of the higher voter turnout elections. Do you think there are going to be some changes before the general election in November that are noteworthy? I mean, for instance, um, being able to process absentee ballots at least to the point of opening envelopes and having them ready to be counted on election night? Well, um, I, you know, there's legislation that's quickly moving through the Senate. Uh, I think that there are a number of other election um, bills that have been introduced and in going through the process that are also going to help all the clerks across the state. And I think we need to work hard to get those over the finish line. And they include, in, you know, increasing precinct size, requiring absent voter application lists on a permanent basis, requiring absent voter counting boards. I think these are all things that are going to help leverage resources and get a real feel for where we're headed in the future with elections. Um, I know there's discussion. You know, I will tell you that the clerks have long asked for no reason AV voters. And nowhere in the past have they mentioned that it was going to be 
such an impossible task. And so I'm quite surprised by the level of alarm now when it is something that we have asked for for a number of years. Right. Under the current guidelines. Right. Listen, we could keep talking about this. I really appreciate your discussion of this and your insight. Thank you so much, Representative Ann Bolin of Brighton Township. Thank you, Representative You're Bolin. Thank, Thank you. you. Have a great day. Same to you. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are fortunate to have with us a longtime political pollster, Ed Sarpolis, who is chief cook and bottle washer with Target Insight. Ed, thanks for joining us. Well, my pleasure. I'm back in my hometown of Detroit, uh, where I started what I'm doing back in 1972, in a couple of years that I've been doing this. Whoa, wow, that is a long time. Well, let me ask you, um, you did a poll, I think a week or 10 days ago here in Michigan, and one of the things that found was that former Vice President Joe Biden retains an enormous amount of support in the African-American community, I think because of his association more than anything else as Barack Obama's Vice President, but he also has a pretty distinguished record over years in the U.S. Senate on civil rights issues and so forth. I'm wondering, number one, what you found, if you can report that, and secondly, you know, how much difference that may make on March 10th here in Michigan in our presidential primary, given what has happened so far in these presidential caucuses and primaries in Iowa, New Hampshire, We've got Nevada and South Carolina coming up, and then Super Tuesday. What do you think? Well, what I think is this Michigan both a double-edged sword for him is one. He's right now at forty-eight percent. His closest person is like you know maybe eight or nine percent. Buttigieg like maybe at eleven percent uh, in the polls amongst female black voters. But the point being, for Biden, this is Michigan could be his last resort. If he can't do well here in Michigan, then where does he go? On the other thing. The point being is the fact he doesn't hold on to the black vote, then other people may come over here and take it over. Because if he's depending on the black vote and then it corrodes, you know, so national polls this week showed that uh, he was basically, Sanders was beginning tied, begin to be showing a tie between him and himself with Bernie Sanders. So in other words, you think he's lost as much support now in the African-American community just based on the results of these two primary states, Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, as he has just overall nationally? Is that what has brought him back to the point where he's virtually tied with Bernie Sanders? Well, what I'm saying, the fact, no, no, he still has he still has an advantage. What I'm saying is the, the, the polls are starting to type on black voters nationally. It's not true in Michigan yet. And so what's going to happen between now in Nevada and Carolina, both the fact that's definitely going to have a big change to what happened with him. Yeah, based on what you know, I know you're not in South Carolina, you're in Michigan, but I mean, if his support, uh, Joe Biden's support in the African-American community holds up until uh, February 29th, that's when the South Carolina primary is, do you think he'll finally win a primary? You know, he has never won a primary. He's run twice before for president in 1988, 
2008. He never won a primary before he dropped out of those races. I would think if held up for him, he should have a victory on, on Super Tuesday. What's important for Biden is, is that right now, what's helping Biden actually hold on is with Buttigieg, you know, starting to take on Bernie Sanders. Okay, so there's less emphasis on him. Number two, we know that Buttigieg is struggling amongst black voters. So even though as Buttigieg moves up, Biden still has a chance. Bernie Sanders has to you know what's he do with Buttigieg. So the point being between now and the Carolina votes. Biden just has to start building a base as strong as he can because let Bernie and Buttigieg fight it out and get his grasp. Because the problem has been for Biden, he didn't have a ground team in, uh, in, in Iowa. He didn't have a ground team in New Hampshire. And he better have something in Nevada. Now, he thought he was going to lock up Nevada, but a lot of the Senate population and union workers uh, in Nevada decided to take a non-vote. Uh, they're not endorsing any candidate, and he was hoping to get that endorsement. Right. What about Mike Bloomberg? Uh, Mike Bloomberg, as you know, isn't really going to compete at all until Super Tuesday, which is March 3rd, a week before Michigan's primary. Uh, Do you think that the circumstances are set in a way that it's conceivable Mike Bloomberg could wind up picking up a lot of support after Super Tuesday and maybe we end up with a brokered convention in the summer? Well, I would think, again, right now, Bloomberg, in the short time, he is now tied for second in amongst black voters. And this is the person supposedly black should go after because of what he did with the search and frisk in New York, okay? Uh, especially amongst black he's doing very well. Bloomberg just got the opportunity to be on the, the debate stage. He's one that's spending millions of dollars, over $20 million, and all the other states for Democrats are not spending. Yes. It's about party is aware of this. That's the reason why you're seeing how they're opening doors for him to be sure that his voice is heard. And also, Bloomberg is the only one out there who's willing to take on Trump openly between now and then. The other thing that's important when people understand with Bloomberg, despite what he did with the black voters, Bloomberg has made apologize to the black community. Does He's not flipping where he was on issues, but he admits that he might have made some mistakes. So Bloomberg is a real candidate and it could end up in a broker convention. Do you think Bloomberg... Uh having hired, I think, 60 staffers here in Michigan and spent $8.5 million in TV ads already, you think he has a good chance to win Michigan? He has a legit, if, if he does anything uh, real, yes, he has a shot. I don't know if he's going to win, but he could, he could be a very big player. If Biden begins to subside, then Bloomberg has a shot. Because right now, Bloomberg, we're not still seeing a lot of Bernie Sanders here and a lot of Buttigieg. So bottom line, Bloomberg and Biden are about the only ones that have a real presence in the state of visibility. What what else do you see happening either here in Michigan or in these other primary and caucus states between now and March 10th that's significant, that's worth noting? Well, for me, I go back to Nevada uh, because it was supposed to be the first test of the Hispanic community, which is another big dominant uh, vote as you move out of Super Tuesday into California and some of the southern states and Texas and stuff. The fact that that large union predominantly of Hispanic uh, vote, we're going to, very important to see what the Hispanics do in Nevada because that's going to spread nationally. Yeah, Ed, either one Ed, I'm having we're having trouble hearing you. You're breaking up a lot. Can you speak right into the cell? 
I, I am. Well, the, what I'm saying is that the Hispanic vote has yet to say where they're going to be going. So Nevada vote to be very important. What uh, this, the other other person of color population that's huge in the South and and, the, and especially in the Southwest is the Hispanic community. So I'm looking at Nevada for the Hispanic, especially the labor unions. Yeah, and that's on February 22nd, and then you got South Carolina, which I think over half the vote there in the Democratic primary is African American, right? It is. It is over half the vote. I mean, that is correct. What's important, the fact, though, is you understand this is that labor is still waiting to decide what to do with Bloomberg. And so with the, with the, the, the Nevada vote, with the large unions, mostly Hispanics and, 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 and Nevada, and then you get to Carolina, some of their union shops, there's not very many out there. The labor is going to make big players. So if something breaks with the Hispanic unions in Nevada and there's some break with the blacks in Nevada, you're going to see maybe labor unions begin to get started getting involved in this primary, which could change the dynamics moving forward. What do you see uh, happening with absentee voting here in Michigan? I mean, it looks like it's going to be huge, maybe over half, maybe even two-thirds of the entire electorate on March 10th may be absentee votes. People have been voting already. They're voting right now. Well, as a matter of fact, I already got my absentee ballots uh, last week. And, uh, yep, I'm already going to be, you know, I'm deciding, am I ready to make a decision? Uh, whether I vote, well, obviously, Republican, Democrat, primary, you got to do that. And then you got to decide what you're going to do. I mean, it's already started, you know, which will have a big impact. So for Biden's purposes, if he has a ground team, then he can build up this absentee voter thing before that event even happens. That's the other reason why it's here. AB voting. You can remember, a lot of Bloomberg team is the Duncan team. <laughs> And, and and so at, at the present time, so this is very important. Yeah, you know, one thing is if the whole race changes dramatically between now and March 10th, which it well could, candidates could drop out. A lot of ballots that have been sent in absentee are going to be, in a sense, spoiled or useless. How many do you think are going to be uh, redone by people? I mean, people could, you know, get their ballot back or whatever it is and vote again, as I understand it. What do you think about that? Oh, I think that's a big change. I think it's, what's important is, is that even now, without the presidential primary, uh, and the, uh, no reason absentee voting, we still had up to 40% or more of the voters voting absentee, especially in the black community. I got and, you. Listen, we're going to have to cut it out here. Take a break. We'll be back in a minute with Ed Sarpolis. Stay tuned. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with top pollster Ed Sarpolis of Target Insight, and we've covered a lot of ground involving the presidential primary. I want to ask one thing of Ed. Um, I have never actually seen any data on what I'm going to ask you about, and I'm just wondering if it's possible for a pollster to do this. We often see polls where, for instance, you know, a week, 10 days ago, you gauged the level of support among the African-American community uh, for Joe Biden and the other candidates running for the Democratic nomination. Uh, You see polls where they break down uh, by income, by education, by age, so forth. Has anybody ever done a poll of the LGBTQ community to find out if, in fact, Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg who is 
LGBT endorsed or backed or whatever. He is gay. Uh, how popular is he really with the LGBT community? Has anybody ever done a poll anywhere on that? To me, that would really be interesting. Well, I would say there has been no recent polls that I'm aware of nationally. I know there's been questions asked about his uh, his gayness and presentation. I will have to tell you this. You don't have the movement in the polls that he's had if there isn't support for him as a gay person. And I think what's important here is they're not voting for him because he's gay, because he doesn't show his gayness. When he presents himself, his issues, his speaking, that's what's very important. The same thing from a different point of view when Barack Obama ran, you know, back in 2008. He, he presented himself as an individual. Buttigieg has learned that the fact that, okay, I am who I am. You have to remember, Buttigieg also is a veteran, so it's, 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 it's the stigma of being gay is sort of lessened for him amongst people who are somewhat conservative because he's been, he's been a veteran, he's been successful, he's been done this thing. So, so things are perce- perception has changed. And remember, he doesn't read the word on the sleeve either about his position. Yeah, I am who I am, and then he just goes about his business. Now, everything I think you say is absolutely true. I'm just curious, could a pollster, whether it's you or another pollster, oh, yes, you could. Yes, actually you could. do uh, a matter of fact, I've done, I've done surveys like that, okay? and you have to do it a little bit more indirect because you don't just want to confront a person like that. You're going to ask them, well, how's your neighbor would vote? How you would think your neighbor is going to vote with a gay person? You basically you take away the pressure from the person and give you an honest answer without actually actually directly answering that question. Because, in other words, if you ask them directly, they may feel like uh – being my, pressured. Yeah, being pressured or my answer might lead to embarrassment for me yeah. or something yeah, like that. Yeah, but you, that's how we were able to predict when, uh, if you look back in the Virginia races, uh, how we were able to predict that, you know, that the, the black governor was going to be able to, the first black person was going to elect because we, had, we didn't ask them, them who was going to vote. How do you think your neighbor is going to vote? And you're able to measure that support for the candidate, not directly, but indirectly. Okay, let's turn to Michigan. What about races here in Michigan? We got a big one coming up. U.S. Senate, Gary Peters, incumbent Democrat running for reelection, being opposed by Republican John James, who ran two years ago against Debbie Stabenow. Uh, what do you think about that race? What's well, likely here, well, to happen? Well, here's the one that's very important. Uh, you know, Gary Peters is obviously, uh, and the black community is leading with, you know, up to 69%. He's had a, like a 2 to a 5% lead over in the overall polls in Michigan. The problem for Gary is the fact is, is that from a pollster perspective, 46% of the black voters who basically he's represented in some form or another, you know, from Congress, U.S. Senate, don't know who he is. And that's not good. Uh, and why is that important? Because, of fact, in Michigan, and Bill, I know you know this because you're, you're much of work as I do this, is that if the race is very close to Michigan presidential lot or there's a Republican advantage turnout, 52 percent, a majority of the white vote will vote Republican. The only reason Democrats win in Republican years is because of the fact is the minority vote, the people of color vote, goes 96 percent plus Democratic. Right now, uh, John James, among black voters, is getting 14 percent. Uh, you get up to 14 percent, and the, the, the white vote goes 53, 54 percent Republican. Gary Peters could be in trouble. Wow. What what about other races around Michigan? I mean, do you have any idea in your mind what this independent commission is likely to come up with when they put together a new map? <laughs> well, wow. I will tell you this. Is I, I, I don't really think they realize what they're going to be confronted with, because, first of all, you cannot do what they say they're going to do. <laughs> I've been doing redistricting now since 1980, and I've, you know, I'm about ready to do some work again in Chicago on redistricting. The key thing here is this. You're going to have some rules they're going to have to follow, okay? 
they think everybody's equally distributed. You've been around a long time. Republicans, Democrats uh, are not equitably distributed across the state. Democrats in the certain part of the state, Republicans in the other parts of the state. You know, it's going to be very hard to do what they want to do. Well, absolutely. Meaning, what do you think? Uh, the well, they're biggest... good, they can tighten up the state house. Definitely can tighten up the state house. Uh, the Senate's going to be hard to make that balance because it's where people live. Congressional races, we could end up, uh, depends on who they eliminate. They eliminate Paul Mitchell's seat, they eliminate uh, Wahlberg's seat, they eliminate uh, Amash's seat. Depending on which seat they eliminate or, you know, Sandy Levin's seat, I mean, Sandy Levin's seat, depending on which seat they eliminate, because we're losing a seat, will determine what the mix of. Because we'll probably end up with either one party will have one seat advantage or two seat advantage, depending on which seat they eliminate. What about this nebulous term, communities of interest? How is that going to play into it? We've been doing that for since 1980, Bill. Community has always taken into account when you draw the line. Uh, that's the reason why the, the Supreme Court, uh, remember when Carl Levin's brother, I think it was, voted with uh, as an independent saying that we're going to do the April criteria. Remember that? Right. Okay, that was the base on community of interest. It was basically the city, then the towns, and the township. You know, uh, Detroit is Detroit. Okay, uh, Hispanic communities are, you know, centered around the Flint area or in West Michigan. That's not going to change the overall drawing of the lines. It's just impossible. Because I remember in, in 90 and 2000 going around the state, you know, showing the maps and trying to get communities. The point being is, and the other thing is the fact is, is that Republicans can still do the commission of not following the standards that have been worked and been approved by the state Supreme Court back in 1980. This is far from they're going to have absolute control. When do you think uh, the commission is likely to come up with a map? And almost certainly it'll probably be challenged in court. I mean, this thing could drag right into 2022, couldn't it? Oh, oh yeah, it could. I think, you know, remember when Chris Thomas was around, he gave them to like, I think, like uh, July 1st, but then we screwed the primary. But I think back to March, I think we went to March of, uh, you know, of, of the election year to finalize the plan. So this could drag into March. Definitely could. Well, it, finalize the plan, you mean in court or you just mean before it ever gets resolved well the point being is they're going to have to provide the state something for people to vote okay by march of the pre of that year for an august event they're going to have to do right okay so they do that but then there still might be legal challenges so it might get right up into august or and it could be right and if it got in august or you'd have to redo the election after the election was done something will happen what do you uh think about Michigan demographically going forward over time, what does it look like Michigan is likely to do? What is Michigan's voting behavior likely to be, let's say, five or ten years from now compared to what we've seen in the last decade? Well, we got a couple of things that are happening here. Is one, we're at a point in Michigan, we almost have uh, we have more people dying than being born every year, okay? We, we need to have more procreation. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Uh, that we have to do. And that was predicted back in 1986. The Census Bureau predicted that. So that's nothing new. The second thing that's going to happen, uh, if you look at demographics, the fact probably probably in the next 10 to 20 years, there'll be a move, movement into Michigan, not because we become necessary here because of the job, because of, of the environment. Okay. Uh, as things get worse in the South with the heat and the lack of water, things will be moving north. So we'll probably go from being old for a very while and then start becoming younger in the next 30 years. Very interesting. In other words, uh, climate warming, you know, might be good for Michigan, right? Well, Global if warming if is you good. you study history, Bill, everybody moves north. The, the, the population <laughs> moves north if you look at a history over time because that's where the water and the environment's always good. Even when you look at those old horror movies, when you're fighting the aliens, we always move north because the aliens <laughs> don't want to go in the cold weather. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, that's a good point, but they haven't been moving north in the previous 50 years. They've been moving south, for God's sake. Well, that'll change when they run out of water. Well, that's for darn sure. Absolutely. Um, what, what do you look at doing here in Michigan in terms of polling going forward? Uh, are you doing as much polling now as you have in the past? Well, yes and no. Well, yes, I, when it comes to politics, I am. I do a lot more uh, behind-the-scenes polling for different groups and people and people like Mirrors News, and I've done polling for you in the past, Bill. The, the point being the fact that I do a lot more specific polling, not for necessarily campaigns, but for interest groups. People want to know what's going on. Well, Council of Black Baptist Pastors, they want polls, what's going on in their community. You're going to get a lot. That's what I do a lot of, and I do a lot of stuff with the media, and I will continue to do that. And I know that coming in May, I'll be start being asked by different groups uh, to, to do maybe maybe 10 polls amongst the, the, the targeted primary races. And come September, I'll do the top 10 or 15 state house races. So the polling will continue. Is it more difficult to do polls today than ever before because of cell phones, because a lot of people have dropped landlines? We've heard a lot of speculation about this. Well, it depends on your professionalism. I will tell you this. Uh, if you at 810, uh, four years ago at 810 after the, pre- the race and the thing closed in November, at 810 I put out a, a, a mass mailing with Mears News predicting Trump was up by 0.5%. Now, how did I do that so quickly? Uh, basically, I did a, I did a, uh, an auto dial uh, phone of 600 voters in Michigan, and I was only off by half percent. So what they say happened did not happen. If you do your what you're supposed to do scientifically, usually you get pretty good results. Wow. Listen, we could keep talking about this. It's a fascinating profession. Polling, public opinion surveys, and Ed Sarpolis has long been one of the best, one of the most prominent. He's head of Target Insight. Thank you, Ed Sarpolis. Thank you, and I'll talk with you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We will be back next week.